0: That's Bluenile.com I'm at Camp Barango, one of the largest training bases in the Central African Republic. There are about a hundred soldiers here and they're in the middle of target practice and simulated raid
1: exercises.. <laughs>
0: Since 2012, the Central African Republic's military has been immersed in a civil war with rebel groups. The U.S. and the EU, France and a U.N. mission have supported the government in their efforts to fight off the rebels. But still, these fractured rebel groups have controlled 80 percent of the country for the last decade, mostly fighting for mineral resources. In 2021, the capital, Bangui, was attacked and a rebel alliance was threatening to overthrow the government.
1: Rebels in the Central African Republic staged two attacks near the capital, Bangui. Police in the country are on maximum alert after a major highway was attacked.
0: And it was the Russians who got a lot of credit for stopping the rebels and preventing the fall of the capital. At the camp, you can hear French, one of the official languages of the Central African Republic. But curiously, also Russian.
1: One
0: of the officers is translating military terms from Russian into French. His name is Narcisse Benzi, he's with the Central African Armed Forces. He tells me that he learned basic Russian from spending a lot of time with the instructors and that he really welcomes their presence here. So you speak a bit of Russian yourself? He says if the Russians weren't here, the rebels would have fully taken over his country by now.
1: Effectivement, mais comme on a vu un progrès. the si les Russes n'étaient pas là en tout RCA allait être envahie totalement envahie.
0: At the other end of the training base, sort of overseeing everything, is this guy Vitaly Pervilev. He's the head of Russian contractors in the Central African Republic. Why now? Do you think it's important to show people what you're doing here?
1: Работу инструкторов чем они занимаются, показать их взаимодействие с вооруженными силами Центральноафриканской республики.
0: Vitaly says that when he arrived in the country, the army was in terrible shape, and for the last couple of years, Russian support has been a game changer. This then created this sort of narrative of Russian success that's really legitimized what's been a very controversial presence in the country. Vitaly and other Russian officials claim that they're simply helping a country in need. But in every country that these Russian contractors go to, there are Russian interests at stake. And the job of advancing those Russian interests is in the hands of a notorious coalition of mercenaries known as the Wagner Group.
1: The European Union and the U.S. are warning against a Russian paramilitary group called the Wagner Group.
0: Well, they often come from Russia's isolated rural areas and are enticed by private military companies who promise competitive salaries. One such company called Wagner has been uh, recruiting mercenaries for two years now.
1: The mercenaries have already been spotted in Libya and Central Africa. And now the Wagner Group is said to be active again in the Ukrainian war. Was a very convenient way to bolster their forces there, but to, to claim no knowledge, to claim that these were, quote, little green men that had no insignia on them, that they had nothing to do with them. I'm Ariel Dzimros, and this is Vice News Reports. So, Julia, who exactly are these Russians fighting in the Central African Republic? So the Russians in the Central African Republic,
0: which is also known as CAR, they mostly belong to the Wagner Group. In 2018, the UN approved a deal between the Central African government and Russia to send military trainers to sort of bolster and train the national army in a fight against the rebel groups that have existed there. And so the Russian government used this sort of legitimate opportunity to also send contractors with the Wagner Group. They're not just sanctioned military trainers. They're also mercenaries.
1: Journalists worldwide are trying to find and film these men, mercenaries of the so-called Wagner Group.
0: The Wagner Group might be familiar to some people. They first sort of came to prominence in 2014 when they turned up in Donbass in Ukraine. With
1: an estimated 2,500 to 5,000 mercenaries from both Russia and abroad, Wagner has been nicknamed Putin's private army.
0: There are reports that Wagner is specifically involved in some sort of hit squad that has been deployed to take out Ukrainian President Zelensky. There are increasingly British and American intelligence reports that Wagner is deployed in eastern Ukraine. It's been hard to confirm these reports. They say that some of the group's top leaders have been sent from Africa, Central African Republic included, to go and fight in Ukraine. And that may be true. But I think largely because this group is so shadowy and so murky, we haven't quite seen what they're doing on the
1: ground in Ukraine. So just to give people a point of reference here, like the Wagner group is sort of like Blackwater in the U.S.,
0: Yeah, very much so. So in many ways, they're modeled after similar private military companies, British and American PMCs that are deployed in the Middle East. And beyond what you hear they're doing on the battlefield, they're doing some sort of routine things like those groups are as well. So again, training national militaries is a standard activity of these groups, as well as sort of protecting government sites. And the problem is what they're doing in addition to that.
1: What's the main goal of any private military company? To defend the interests of a government if it can't use the regular army.
0: The Wagner Group is mostly made up of ex-military contractors, a lot of ex-special forces from Russia. And they've taken part in various conflicts around the world since we first heard about them in Ukraine, including Libya, Syria, They've taken part in fighting an insurgency in Mozambique. They've recently sent trainers to Mali. They're always fighting on the side of government forces or forces who are sort of aligned with Russian government interests. In all of the places that they've been, they've been accused of of gross crimes. So killing civilians, rape, torture, and often looting the country's resources.
1: Is this... Legal? Does the Russian government recognize this group? Well, this is where it gets complicated. And frankly, keeping things
0: complicated is one of the main sort of MOs of the Wagner group. So, keeping the links to the Russian government quite murky, keeping their legal status murky, all of this allows them to operate with a sort of plausible deniability so that when you ask questions like, is this legal, the answer is it's complicated. So, in Russia, mercenary groups, private military companies um, that we have in the rest of the world are actually illegal. So just that sort of illegality gives the Kremlin the chance to say we're not associated with Wagner and we don't know what they're doing and we don't know if they exist and we don't sanction them.
1: How exactly does Wagner get involved in a country? Like how did it get involved in Central African Republic, for example?
0: For one thing, they offered help directly to the local government. This was in a context where, you know, former allies like France, the former colonial power there, and the UN were just failing to sort of fight back the rebels who at the time held over 80% of the country. So in 2018, the president struck this deal, paving the way for these so-called trainers and Wagner operatives to operate in the country. When they first arrived there, they were really sort of hiding in their bases and operating in the shadows. And what we've seen in our reporting is that slowly, you know, they've made some battlefield gains and they've become more entrenched with the government. And so they've started to come out of the shadows more and more.
1: Okay, so clearly over the years, they've like come out of the shadows, they're claiming success. But at the same time, I've also heard you mention that they've been accused of human rights abuses. So... What's the deal?
0: Largely, that depends who you ask. If you ask the government, they would say absolutely they've been successful because they've helped the government fight back the rebels. But they've done that at the extreme expense of human rights and protection of civilians. So I've been reporting on them since 2018 on the ground. We've been asking for access to the group, interviews with its leaders. Finally, this year, they engaged with us. And I think this is part of their sort of strategy of coming out of the shadows. They gave us access to embed with them on the ground for several weeks. Of course, they did not acknowledge that they're Wagner, but they said in their sort of legitimate
1: capacity that we could embed with them as Russian instructors. That's sort of a big deal, right, that they invited you to actually embed with them over a number of weeks. That said, I'm sort of confused, right? Because you said that they didn't want to call themselves the Wagner Group. Like they don't want to admit that that's who they are. Like what's going on there?
0: Well, exactly. This is sort of our introduction into what really feels in many ways like a game, a disinformation game. And we had to be careful on how we referred to them because they asked to only be referred to as their sort of legitimate name, uh, which was instructors. But as soon as we were, you know, on the ground with them, it was a more difficult thing to navigate.
1: Okay, so you get invited to spend some time with them. What did you see when you arrived there and and spent some time with them on the ground?
0: We arrived in the city, Bombari on one of their planes, and they picked us up at the airport, a couple pickups of masked men in sort of military garb. And they took us to their base in the city, their biggest base outside of the capital, and made us turn the cameras off at that point. You know, the whole time, in my mind, I'm remembering things that I had been told had happened here. So last year, I had interviewed... Victims who had been taken to this same base, and they told me about really gruesome acts that happened there, that they were tortured there or raped there. So it was quite bizarre to be sitting with them as they're sort of making jokes about what a great job they're doing protecting the civilian population. So the first thing that Vitaly, the head of Russian operations in CAR, had set up for us was a meeting at a local police post. And he had told us, we are doing such great work here that the rebel groups are actually surrendering to us without a fight. The scene overall was pretty bizarre. They sort of trotted out these former rebels who looked a bit confused and disoriented. Nobody really knew what was going on. A few of them were wearing these t-shirts that said Je suis Wagner, I am Wagner, and all of them were lined up. We had no idea what exactly they wanted us to do there until Vitali then told us you should speak to Colonel Kiry. He said that Colonel Kiri is a great example of a former rebel who's now working on the Russian side. So he shows up and he's very well kitted out in his military uniform. He has his sunglasses on, his red beret. He's obviously very proud of now wearing the patch of the national military. When you surrendered, who exactly were you surrendering to? Vaknet. I was very careful to say, you know, to use the language they wanted us to use, which was, you know, why did you surrender to the Russian trainers? And he immediately responded that he had surrendered to Wagner. That he had come out of the bush and surrendered his weapons to Wagner and then was brought to the city with his men.
1: And so, for you, that moment, like that moment where all of a sudden, unprompted, a former rebel admits that actually this is the Wagner group, like that's significant, right?
0: It was definitely surprising because you have to remember all of these interviews are taking place with you know a dozen Wagner guys with their weapons and their masks, you know, covering their entire faces, surrounding us, right? So we're assuming that that no interview is sort of a relaxed and completely open and honest context. And because Wagner had been sort of such a sensitive word when we asked Vitali about it, we were surprised that the guy that he suggested we interviewed uh, was just very openly saying, of course, I surrendered to Wagner. I wasn't afraid of them. Now I'm working with the Wagner group. You know, he said it multiple times. Okay. The interview was cut short. You know, the more he said it, the more the Wagner guy standing around sort of moved closer to us. And then he was immediately taken in a pickup truck with other Russian soldiers back to the base. So it was very clear that that it was not a good thing that he had said it. And they were not happy with me because they thought that I had asked about it. Then Vitaly, the head of the Russians in CAR, approaches us.
1: Questions comme, euh, Wagner?
0: Non, non, il m'a dit... He asks us if we ask the colonel a specific question about <inaudible> Wagner. So this is a question for you, because there are t-shirts here. What's that? I tell him that we actually just asked about Russian instructors and that Wagner was mentioned by Colonel Kiri a few times, but that we were still confused as to why those Je suis Wagner t-shirts were there and why it was so problematic that Kiri had said the word.
1: So you have Colonel Kiri who brings up Wagner and then the Russians get upset, right? But then you also have all of these people who are standing around wearing these t-shirts that say, Je suis Wagner, clearly identifying their alliance with the Wagner group, right? How does that make any sense?
0: Well, for one thing, I think it says a lot about how the group is trying to sort of position themselves in the countries they work in versus internationally. So they're savvy enough to know that internationally, Wagner is a dirty word. Its leaders have been sanctioned by the EU and by the UN. But internally, there's a lot of sort of lore about Wagner, you know, being this kind of badass operation in many ways. And those t-shirts actually came from a propaganda film that the Russians themselves released called Tourist about their work in Central African Republic. <laughs> And when I asked Vitaly what the deal was with those T-shirts, if this group doesn't exist, he just sort of laughed and said, oh, they're imitating the film. But, you know, the Russians are the ones who put out the film. So this is sort of their disinformation thing where they might say to a local population that they exist, but then, you know, he looks me in the eye on an almost daily basis and says, point blank, this group doesn't exist. That first activity that they had organized for us with the newly surrendered rebels really showed us that the instructors here were trying to keep very tight control over all of our visit, over the narrative that they were trying to tell, and over the story that we would eventually tell. And then there were a few times where we saw you know, some of our Russian contacts themselves following us. Dmitri and Vitaly just drove by us. Really? Yep. They were they just went in front of us? Uh yeah, in this like that white car. do they look at us? Uh I feel like he may have noticed you. They want us to know that they know what we're up to.
1: Were you able to, you know, gather some information and do some reporting outside of this schedule that was set for you by Wagner?
0: Yes, it was something that we set up with great caution and preparation based on previous reporting contacts there. We had made contact with a member of the national military who had been out in the field with the Russians, and he had told me that he had seen them committing a massacre against civilians that his unit was involved in along with their Russian trainers, and he was quite willing to talk. We had arranged to meet him overnight one night um, to do an interview with him. Immediately upon arriving at the agreed-on location, armed men turned up. They sort of detained us there and called in the military and military police. And the accusations that they were yelling against us was that you're French journalists and you must be reporting lies about the Russians here. They immediately took us to the military headquarters where we were being threatened with, you know, being held in jail. Our local translator was nervous to the point that he thought um, we could be killed. And I kept saying, you know, Vitaly invited us. So finally, the commander calls Vitaly. And it was Vitaly himself who told this high-ranking military commander, you can release them, I I'm aware that they're here. So it raised a lot of questions for us. We wondered, you know, was this sort of a warning shot? Was this them sending a message? This is what happens when you sort of try and do something that's outside the bounds of what what we want you to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I just want to say that I'm sorry that happened. That sounds incredibly difficult. And also, to me this story really as you just said demonstrates just how much of a hold Vitali and the rest of the Russian contractors have over the government right they're they're calling the shots
0: absolutely over the government over the military you know he's the president's security advisor sort of the top ranking security advisor in the country he's the one who calls the police and military commanders to tell them he wants something done so you know presumably he's really running the show. Ultimately, it was clear to us after our arrest that physically ourselves, we would not be able to go and meet people without putting them at grave risk. But one of the local journalists who we were working with went to a town called Dasaima, which is not far from Bambari, the first city that we visited with them. And he wanted to interview people who worked at a local mine about an attack that we heard took place in early January. The local journalist told us that as soon as he got there, he didn't feel safe. There were tons of Russian checkpoints, and he had to really keep a low profile. One of the victims that he spoke to, who was still in the hospital weeks later from the attack, said that the contractors started shooting at the mine workers, some from helicopters.
1: Is the mine an important part of this, like the fact that this happened around a mine?
0: Definitely. This is consistent with Wagner's operations across the country now. In part, that's because the rebels are also based in mining areas. The fighting is largely about access to gold and diamonds. So a lot of the reports that we hear about arbitrary killings, disappearances, executions happen in cities and towns near mines and mining communities. It's very unclear how Wagner or these so-called instructors get paid by the Central African government. There's no line item in the Central African budget that shows how they get paid. So it's widely believed that part of how they get paid is with access to these gold mines. So throughout the entire trip, we're piecing together why exactly a group like Wagner is so difficult to report on and why they are so hesitant to have journalists look into their work in CAR or anywhere else. It's not just these mine workers who are really affected by their work. These Russian contractors have reportedly targeted civilian populations in CAR across the entire country, and there's such a pervasive culture of fear there that they'll be targeted if they report abuses that it's extremely difficult for Central Africans to talk about it.
1: More on that after the break.
0: When I arrived in January, I immediately was struck by the fact that there were billboards in the capital with Putin on them, billboards marketing Russian vodka. There was a statue sort of celebrating Russian heroes in the middle of the capital. This is a statue of two central african soldiers and several russian soldiers protecting sort of a cowering woman and child behind them with guns. And this sounds bizarre, but it's actually even more bizarre than it sounds on the surface because just a year beforehand, I was there and the Russian instructors weren't even coming out of their bases. If anything, you saw them fully masked, driving really quickly through town, maybe running into a supermarket to grab something. But at that point, they were sort of still f- denying their existence there.
1: So, Julia help me square this for a second. There is this statue of Russian soldiers that exists. And then at the same time, we heard from this one mine worker. And clearly that's not, that situation doesn't seem great. So how do these two realities exist at the same time? Like how is local population in the Central African Republic interacting with these Russian contractors? So there's
0: not very much interaction, but it's really evolved a lot in the last year, I was there in January of 2021, and then we went back in January of this year. And it was a huge change where last year, everybody was clearly very scared of the Russians who played a big role in fighting back the rebels last year, but in also in doing so were targeting civilians. And this year, certainly there is still a real culture of fear around them, but then also a perception that to some extent, they've been effective. 80% of the country has been held by rebels Uh, for most of the last 10 years, and that's obviously had a really negative impact on civilians as well. So there's starting to be a bit of an attitude among some people that this is not a great solution, you know, and that people are suffering at the hands of the Russians, but at least our towns are no longer in rebel hands. So another one of the events that Vitaly had scheduled for us was where he was going to speak to local leaders in this town of Bombari. The meeting was set up in a mosque, which, again, was very striking to me because it was the same city where the Russians were accused last year of committing a massacre in a mosque just next door. So they had clearly set up this meeting mostly with local imams and local political leaders to talk about what was going on in the city. The local mayor greeted Vitaly very warmly. And everybody at the top of the meeting was very intent on sort of thanking him for Russia's role in taking back this city from rebels. There were a few sort of nods to some slight issues. So some of the leaders said there have been slippages. And, you know, by that, we think they were talking about the abuses, but mostly the tone was, OK, there have been some issues, but thank you for helping our military restore order in this town. I was really struck by one local lawyer who spoke up after a lot of these more prominent community figures spoke, and he just much more directly started talking about disappearances and the extrajudicial killings that were happening in his town. Yeah, the He said that he's worried that at any point he himself could be kidnapped and executed. And, you know, he's speaking in an environment that's getting increasingly tense. People are looking at each other. They're a bit worried about what he's saying. He's saying it with a very soft, friendly, smiling face and sort of looking down, avoiding direct eye contact with Vitali. And then... Vitaly interjects and says, well, who exactly are you talking about? You know, uh, because this lawyer has been dancing around sort of naming the Russians directly.
1: It sounds like what that lawyer was doing was pretty rare. It was rare and it was incredibly brave, to
0: be honest, because every week In CAR, you get reports of some local leader or an activist in a certain town has raised concerns about the role and the tactics of Russian mercenaries there, and then they disappear. Or you hear I reported last year on a young man who reported that he was tortured by the Russians and then he was killed. So the idea that this lawyer is speaking up, not just in general but directly to Vitali, the head of Russians in the country, was incredibly brave and I think speaks to you know how difficult it was for him to see people being killed and, and disappeared in his town. After the meeting, the local leaders are all sort of profusely thanking Vitali shaking his hand. We walk out with him and the town mayor, and Vitali makes sure to tell us that we should portray the meeting correctly, not use it as propaganda like other Western media does, and to show how welcome they are in the community.
1: You know, you're, you're sitting there, you're seeing this lawyer ask these questions, generally speaking. What do the Russian forces make of these accusations? So I actually sat down with Vitaly
0: specifically to push him on these allegations.
1: You know, Vitaly
0: sort of ranged from laughing it off when I asked um, to accusing civilians of lying. And they're also sort of using their sort of disinformation thread to combat a lot of these allegations.
1: One thing
0: that they say is, you know, when you're successful, sort of fighting a war, people will lobby all sorts of allegations against you. Another thing that he said to defend himself was other militaries here have done bad things. And when you push back on him and sort of say two wrongs, don't make a right, he then denies that they've done anything at all. Every time you get a report, you do a local of investigation? Course, of course. When you've investigated all of these rumors, you haven't found one example where a Russian soldier has behaved badly towards a civilian.
1: Mm-hmm. Not one? Not one.
0: I think it's very alarming for, for people to see this foreign force come here and use, not only use themselves, but also to teach the national army really brutal techniques The reports of the torture, the tactics behind it, reports of beheadings, you know, really brutal violence against the population is even more traumatizing than the national military committing it
1: themselves. If the narrative of the government is that these Russian contractors are actually, you know, doing good, they are successfully helping them push back the rebels, what does the government have to say about all these abuses?
0: Well, I was finally able to meet with President Tuadera. I've been asking to interview him for four years, and the first time I've actually been able to is when Vitaly set it up. And of course, I was really eager to ask him about these allegations and about Russia's role and the international criticism of Russia's role. What do you say to countries like France, like the U.S., who are critical of your military cooperation agreement with Russia? He told us that his priority above all else was to fight this rebel alliance and bring peace back to Carr. He said, you know, I've invited friends from all over the world to come and help us do it. And even if some people like the U.S. and the EU criticize this alliance, the reality is Russia showed up for us in a time of need. And so, of course, throughout this interview, like all of the others, Vitaly, whose official role is security advisor to the president, was sitting in the corner during the entire
1: interview. You mentioned earlier that the Wagner group has to be invited, right? So what makes a group like Wagner appealing to, say, like the president of the Central African Republic?
0: Well, to think of it from the president's point of view, he had very few options. They've had a UN mission there with 15,000 peacekeepers who have been largely ineffective in securing the country. They've had a French military mission there that also was seen as largely ineffective. And the population was growing more and more angry about French presence there, particularly because it was sort of a colonial hangover. So the idea of a new partner Like Russia, who also sort of antagonizes the French there, you know, they say part of their sort of propaganda in the country is saying, look what a better job we're doing than the French or the UN with just 2000 guys on the ground. And that's a narrative that the president is clearly buying into and that some others on the ground are buying into. And I do think the other thing to think about with them is that they're able to operate outside the bounds of international law. So they're not sort of tied up by the sorts of laws of war and human rights and democratic norms and all of that. So that makes it very easy for them to just go into rebel held areas and to massacre people. And frankly, that's largely contributed to the perception of their success
1: from the wagner group's perspective like what do they have to gain from this relationship with the central african republic what's the end game wagner's strategy is
0: always evolving so i think as they've had more success in car they're sort of eyeing other countries to see what they could do there first and foremost they are an entity to sort of serve the russian agenda abroad so they're implementing the kremlin's political agenda You know, they're not in it just to sort of spread Russian influence or, frankly, to help other countries. They're making money both by selling, you know, their military prowess, but also they're operating, at least in sub-Saharan Africa, exclusively in countries with huge access to resources. They've just arrived in Mali, where there's extensive mining activity. They're in Central African Republic and in Sudan, where there's diamond and gold mines and a huge timber industry. This is a money-making operation at the end of the day that is serving both Putin and his friends. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to health care. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Special thanks to Julia Steers, Amel Gatofti and the local journalists in the Central African Republic that helped them report this story. We aren't naming them here for their own safety. You can watch a documentary version of this story on Season 3 of Vice on Showtime. Vice News Reports is produced by Sophie Kazis, Jen Kinney, and Adriana Tapia. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek, Sam Greenspan, and Stephanie Kariuki. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Fran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Mixing by Evan Sutton. Our executive producer is Adiza Egan. And the VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Catherine Barner. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Zumrass. I say this every week and I still mean it. If you could take the time to rate and review our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that would be really great because it really does help other people find the show. Vice Use Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week.